This episode is brought to you by Harris Resort SoCal. Nestled against a rolling hillside and just down the road from Palomar Mountain, guests at Harris Resort SoCal can expect gorgeous views, friendly staff, available night and day to encourage everyone to have a great time. When I was there recently, I had a chance to dine at California's first and the nation's largest house kitchen. And it's true, the beef wellington and sticky toffee dessert are great. The restaurant is inspired by the hit TV show and features a menu approved by the Michelin star celebrity chef, Gordon Ramsay himself. Hope to see you all at Harris Resort SoCal in 2024. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over the world. Hey, Kimberly, how are you? Hi, good. How are you? Good, good. Thank you. Thank you for being on. Yeah, of course. I, um, I start every episode with a, a basic question. You know, what does it mean to be Vietnamese to today? What's your evolution what, for the word? Um, it's, a, it's a question that I haven't thought about in a long time. But now that I have a daughter, uh, it's one that I've been thinking about more closely. Um, I would say growing up in the United States, having been born in the U.S. and being raised in the U.S. at the time, um, I didn't really take pride in being Vietnamese. Um, I think that, you know, I was one of the few Asian kids or Vietnamese kids in school. And then, through, I mean, in elementary and I would say even middle school until high school when there were many more Asian kids around, let alone Vietnamese. Um, and I feel like I, when I was young, I had more of this assimilationist model, right? Like I really wanted to be white. I wanted to blend in. I, you know, I was envious of the kids who, um, like, I don't know, whose parents knew American culture. I spent a lot of time watching things like the Brady Bunch and stuff like that on TV. But over time, I think in high school was when I really started to um, develop much more of a Vietnamese or Asian American identity. Um, and really, I think I would say take pride in it. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, I think for me, what it means to be Vietnamese has, has transformed a lot over time, because I think, um, there's something about being Vietnamese American in the context of the United States. There's something about being Viet Gieu and going back to Vietnam and not necessarily being spending a lot of my life in Vietnam and not being, you know, Vietnamese um, in the sense of there. And so I, to me, what it means to be Vietnamese now is like it, I feel like I live a life in two worlds and will always be feel split between the two places um, a Vietnam that I came to love and understand that is very different from the Vietnam my parents lived um, and, a, and a Vietnamese America that is um, very much second generation that's very different from how my parents experienced it. Like I, I definitely feel like I experience far less racism than my parents did. So it's much easier for me to celebrate um cultural differences in different ways. Although right now under the, you know, in the current climate that has changed a, a bit, but I would say for a long time, it was something that I feel like I grew up celebrating um, through college and into my adult years um, and wanting to learn more and wanting to understand better. I think being Vietnamese is hard because um, 
There's a very fraught history that's tied to um, a very complicated war that many people don't understand or fully understand that, that, you know, people spend their whole careers studying and have very different outlooks on what that is. And so um, that perspective, I think, is hard when you are trying to understand both sides of it, being um, part of a new generation that doesn't, that didn't live through the atrocities and have the same kind of emotional, um, the deep emotional connections I think the older generations had. Yeah, I don't think we are given, b- both to ourself or society gives us enough room to sort of process that, what you just said, um, this identity. And now we're, we've got to unpack it. I mean, this is the time to, to really get into, um, where did you grow up? Um, so I was born in Denver, Colorado, um, and I lived there for five years. My parents were sponsored by an American woman who was a white um, lady. And she, um, in taking my parents in, she named me. So my name is Kimberly Kay. I don't have a Vietnamese name, actually, a Vietnamese first name. Uh, I was born in Denver. And I, in that area where I grew up, it was very white. Um, it was like, I feel like a, a real prototypical sort of like suburban neighborhood where everybody knew each other. I mean, I remember like climbing the fence and getting my nails done in my neighbor's houses and going down to the neighbor's house, other the other part of, you know, down the street. And there was like peppermint candies and people sort of didn't really lock their doors and everyone knew each other. And even though we were, I, even though I, my parents describe racism there, I didn't feel it as a kid. Um, I, I feel like I freely flowed through all these people's houses um, and it was a very loving environment. But then when I turned five, um, my life changed quite dramatically. Um, I went from not speaking any Vietnamese to moving in with um, my mother's mom, my mother's mother, my Bangui, who only spoke Vietnamese and um, my mom's side of the family. And so I had to quickly adapt and adjust Um, And so from five until, you know, college, I lived in Southern California where my parents ran a pool hall for 18 years um, in Garden Grove. And um, I grew up kind of like a billiard rat kid, I guess you could say. Um, So I I then went from that to, to really being embedded in the heart of the Vietnamese community and like kind of my, you know, my parents' business was in the heart of, of Little Saigon, I would say. Um, and, um, you know, then I was part of, I went, I was Catholic, I grew up Catholic. So I was part of like Tuny and, and went to like the new classes and all of that stuff. And so I formed a bond with a lot of those people on, you know, on Saturdays. Um, and my whole, my whole world really changed, I think, moving to California and being thrust from like a very white um, upbringing to being suddenly like around the largest community of Vietnamese Americans in the U.S. Um, yeah. What year was that? Those eighteen years of owning that pool hall. Um, I would say around nineteen eighty-seven, eighty-eight-ish, nineties. I'm, I'm. It's been so long. I don't remember until about two thousand and one. Okay. I ask that because those years are very significant to what the the street scene was like in Garden Grove. It, that was not a smooth <laughs> period. No. It was a very angry part of our history with young men and young women 
yeah. who uh, were disconnected with um, their parents or the previous generation. I think there was like this huge cultural generational gap. And I want to hear about it right now. I like, I want to ask yeah. you about that sort of um, that those first early years, because weren't you, I mean, didn't you get exposed to a lot of gang members that came through the pool hall and being a, a, a Catholic family, it sounded like you all had sort of this traditional those are very different lifestyles that mm -hmm. um, I'm curious, how is that uh, yeah. the two extremes playing with each other? I mean, um, it's really fraught, I would say, because um, I, had a, I would, you know, I think I've been reflecting on this more with my sisters now and my brother, but um, I think that, you know, all of us have different narratives of what our childhood is like and all people can live in the same family and have different interpretations of what that is. And so I will just say that, you know, I caveat what I say, everything I say today, that this is my version of my history. <laughs> but if you talk to my parents and if you talk to my siblings, you would probably get a different version. And that, I don't think that there's one truth. So I really want to say that, but I will say that um, I grew up in a very, very strict household. Um, I think my parents were particularly my father was stripped to an extreme. And I would even say now I would, you know, I've never said this publicly, but I would say now it was a very abusive household um, in the way that it was strict, but I don't think it was different from, I do think there's some things that were different in terms of the extreme of the abuse, but not different from how many of my Vietnamese American friends were raised at the time. Um, and I think that the, my parents were strict because of everything that they saw at work all, all the time that made them extra paranoid, extra careful. Um, my father monitored my every move. I mean, like our house had this crazy alarm system where um, you could push a button and there would be nine police officers surrounding the house in like 30, 60 seconds. Um, there was no, never sneaking out of the house because all the windows were double windowed. So if you opened a window on the inside, it would beep three times. And if you opened the window on the outside, the alarm would go off and the police shit would show up. Um, so it was sort of living in it's your own version of a jail. While at the same time, they ran this billiard 18 hours a day. And, um, and I have to say that, you know, it's very true that the, the billiard was rough and had a lot of rough characters, except that um, at the time I was a child, you know, I was young. I was and I didn't start really spending a lot of time in, in the billiard until I was about 13 when I started helping my parents work there. Um, so I worked, you know, start as like immigrant kids working in your parents business, helping your parents when businesses slow or whatever, and when it's harder to employ or hire people, you, the kids work, right? And so, um, but I, you know, I don't look at any of those men with, I think at the time, I will say this, at the time I was snobby and I was like, oh, these guys are so fobby, like, you know, and I realize that's totally derogatory now to think of them that way. But I will say this, they were very good to me and they were very, very loving to me. And the men who you would imagine who are most violent on the streets 
were the men who would give me quarters to play video games because they felt bad that I was stuck in this billiard for like 10 hours a day after school. They were the men who helped me with my math homework when my parents couldn't because they were too busy. They were the men who, you know, really, um, rooted for us and wanted us to be good, happy, well-adjusted kids. Like, you know, we would, um, my sister and I, it's, you know, my parents closed the billiard at two in the morning. And so my sister and I would often come home from school and spend, stay at the back of the van outside of the billiard and then drive home at two in the morning from the billiard to go to sleep and then go to school. And you would, and we were scared for sure, sleeping in this back of this van at night among like gangsters and stuff like that. Right. But they actually, in a lot, in their own ways, I think did things to make us feel safe. I don't know if it was because we were young girls or um, what it was, but I really learned to see the humanity in them and to really respect them. And I will say that my um, like discrimination against them is and and like it was too, too you know too, like twin sided, I guess. Yeah. It's what motivated me to become an Asian American studies major as an undergraduate in college to kind of understand like the history and the context for why they were there. Because I, I knew and understood as a kid that I, my livelihood and all the privileges I had was a, di a direct result of them being a patron of my parents' business. So I always knew that I had, I had to respect them, but I didn't really know but respect out of fear is very different from respect out of like, um, just like being in awe or understanding or, you know, you, you understand. Yeah. Appreciate appreciation. And so I think that it was very different, you know, um, I, but it, I was really motivated to understand and, you know, learn more about what it means to be a single, single immigrant man, because, I'll tell you this, my parents never closed the doors of the business. And so I, I also resented these men sometimes because we never had Christmas or that or Thanksgiving. Everything was Thanksgiving at the billiard, Christmas at the billiard. I mean, like, and over time, all those holidays were celebrated with them. And my parents used to try to explain to me that, well, you know, a lot of these are single men and, and the holidays, they have nowhere to go. So where do they go? They come here. You know, if we close the doors, people are going to get really upset. And in fact, one year they closed for Christmas and someone threw a rock and broke the door because they were so pissed. And so I was like, I remember as a high school student thinking like, oh, these guys are all losers, you know, like they don't have anywhere to go for the holidays. There's no women. And then I later learned, well, like if you think about the, you know, the fact that more men migrated than women, like what women were they going to marry? But I didn't understand that until I was 18 or until I was in college because I was just too young, you know? Um, and, um, and, and so, yeah, I, 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 I would say this too about, um, about that environment. I grew up very rough around the edges, like compared to most of my colleagues, particularly Vietnamese colleagues in academia, I'm very working class, you know, my parents didn't go to college. They ran a pool hall that was like rough around the edges. Um, most of my Vietnamese American colleagues are like, like I think of, you know, first generation Vietnamese, you know, plane, like they left on planes in 1975. And at that time talked about it with a great deal of pride, even though now they turn around and call themselves refugees. You, I mean, it's complicated. Right. But I would say that, you know, um, that, kind of working class, like super working class 
identity is where I, I really come from. Um, I didn't come from an educated family either in Vietnam or in the U.S. How, how did they get into the pool hall business? My mother's uncle um, was very big in the pool hall business. So he owned two billiards in Westminster, Garden Grove, and then my parents owned the third. Because that's not a business that you just get into because of the nature of the people that you're you know, the patrons that are coming to the business. Yeah. You know, what's so ironic when I think about it now, both of those businesses are named after religion, like a religious, like one is Tan Tham is like Tan Tham one, which is, you know, faith. And the other is like Bit Dao, which is like devout faith. You know what I mean? I think it's now I, I just, I just thought about this the other day, like how ironic is it that those two places have very religious names because they were, they were so Catholic, the owners, my, my, my great uncle, my mother's uncle and my, my mom and dad. Um, and so there, there's nine priests, Catholic priests in my family. So, you know, I definitely feel like I, you know, it a contradiction in that way for sure. It's like, yeah. But that, again, having to kind of like live in and witness both sides of that world allows you to develop this sort of like nuanced approach to analyzing sort of uh, the work that you're going to be discussing, in, you know, in a bit. But um, I think about uh, how close the mafia or the cartels are with the Catholic religion. You know, mm -hmm. these are men who are yeah. sometimes committing atrocious um, acts, but they're so close to their Catholic religion. I don't know what it is about that relationship yeah. that often ha it's paired together in such an ironic, um, ironic way. But, you know, your parents are operating this this uh, pool hall. And, you know, when I was growing up, because I grew up in that time, there was a lot of shooting. I mean, we would play pool. Um, I, I'm from LA. I didn't uh, grow up in Orange County, but we would come down to Orange County. We were always in the back of our head, ready that there was going to be some gunfire or a yeah. fire. I mean, it broke out all the time. I, I remember growing mm -hmm. up and and experiencing that. I didn't run with the gangs or anything, but just, I, you know, I was a young man. Like I liked to play pool at the time and it was a fun thing to do, but we were always worried. Well, how did your mom and dad, sort of deal with that, uh, the gang problem? I, I, I think if you were to talk to them, they probably can tell you more or give you a different version of it. I'll say that um, my view of that was a view as a kid. And so um, I don't know. I mean, I, I have to say that my mother is, um, I really attribute a lot of that to my mom because she the way I saw her is that she was this beautiful woman who um, always had this light about her. I mean, like, I don't know what it was. She has this kind of karma. Like she drive till this day, we go into a parking lot and there's always like priority parking for her somehow, like some car will pull out and she can pull in. And she really um, ran the place, I have to say. And and she wasn't scared of any of them. And I think that she um, she treated them with a certain kind of humanity, but at the same time, sternness. 
where they knew that they couldn't bring that into the place. And somehow because of her, they like everyone respected those boundaries in there. So maybe they have experienced it, but I can't recall in the whole time I grew up there that there was, I mean, there may have been guns pulled out, but I don't think there was a shooting. I can't, I don't think so. I mean, I think there were definitely like tension and fights. And my mother was the one who would always put her face and her body out to diffuse it. And I think there's something about a woman who can diffuse tension between men that probably my dad could never do, but she was very good at it. Um, the only thing I remember was like, you know, it was a cash run business. And so at the time, and so like, um, I remember, you know, being scared of like going home at night after closing the register. Cause like in the back where you drive out, it's a one way alley. So there's no, like, so when you're, when you're driving the car out, somebody could block you and rob you. And that was something that we were scared about a lot. And, you know, it wasn't like a lot of money I, at the time. I mean, whatever, it's relative. But um, but um, there was one time where they my mom's car was blocked and she like reversed the car and made it as if she was just going to ram them. And I think it freaked them out so much that they just backed the car out and then it never happened again. So I feel like, when I think of my mother at the time, she was just like this, she was a very strong businesswoman. And she was, you know, she was um, kind of the anchor of the place. And people really, they call, I mean, a lot of those men called her mama, like, you know, like they would come in and greet her. And I mean, like she was like a mom in some ways, like to the old and young men in some ways. And so, I feel like it was, it became a place that felt more like a sanctuary and less of a violent place than um, many people imagine. And I think it's important to like, to to some, to like, to deep, to like dispel a lot of it, because I feel like I could say like, oh yeah, I like, you know, my parents ran this billiard, everything was so rough, but there was a very human side to the place. Um, And that's what I saw. And that's what I was, what I witnessed most of the time. Um, you know, sure. Where people like, you know, do they say insensitive things or like, you know, whatever? Yes, of course. Right. But like, I saw more humanity in there than I did violence, Frank, to be honest. When I think about what you and how you described your mother, I think that she had to have some major street sense. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, yeah, I don't know. Did it come from Vietnam? Did it come from, you know, you know, because you describe a very blue class sort of up, up, blue um, collar upbringing. And, you know, did she bring that sort of culture from Vietnam and street tough from Vietnam? And it was brought into sort of like the uncles that her uncles that the culture of, of the street and she understood it. She understood the playbook and she yeah. just. My mom came to the U.S. when she was 13. She was very young and she got married when she was 19 and she was running that pool hall when she was like 20 in her 20s. So I don't. So And my mom is not when I think of like street smarts, my mom wasn't like rough around the edges in that way. She was very glamorous. Like she was. She worked in that billiard wearing like six inch heels every single day. And her hair was done up. Like she was very regal. Um, 
And I don't, she, so she was never rough. Like she was never, she was so, she was always like really soft and gentle with these men. So, I mean, and when she needed to be stern, she was stern, but it was more like lowering her voice rather than yelling at them. Or like, um, I don't know. I mean, I feel like she won their respect by being kind. And I don't know, maybe if you talk to some of the guys who hung out at that time, maybe because they were older, they might have a different recollection of her, but she wasn't like, she wasn't hard. She was just very giving and very generous too. And she, and I mean, like these men in that billiard loved her so much that people painted portraits of her, like huge portraits of her and would just bring them as gifts. And they would bring, and it wasn't like, I don't know. I was young. I didn't see any of that as romantic in any way. It was more of just like respect. She was, yeah, she was super regal and she just commanded respect. And she was a smart businesswoman. I don't, I really think she kind of learned it on the spot and Mm -hmm. it was like in her, it's like, that was her, um, jam. (laughs) That was her. Yeah. And it was like her where, when she was the most strong, like she's the type of person that when she would go into the Vietnamese grocery stores and go to the fish counter, the men would always give her the best cut of fish. I can, like, I don't know why I could never do that. I didn't, I don't have that energy, but she has this kind of ease about her. Like everything's going to be fine. And it, but it's not, it's not lackadaisical. It's like a, it's, it's very regal. I, I, you know, I don't know how else to describe it, but people were attracted to her. People loved her. She always smiled. Like, I feel like I wear a permanent bitch face. That's very similar to my father. My dad, like my mom always like, you know, you know, you know, and I was born that way, but my mother was born with like a smile, a perpetual smile. And, um, she was just really pretty and she was very regal and respected and people. So she wasn't tough in that way. And I, 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 yeah, I I think that's what worked in that place. I recently learned, I don't know how uh, gender, I, I have to bring this up because this is a thing now. I've just learned it in the past year. There's this term called big dick energy. I don't know it. <laughs> so, yeah, I just learned it. It it means, you know, obviously there's the implication that a man, but it also is used to describe women too that if he thinks he has a big dick, then he walks around a certain way with this sort of swagger. And so it's applied to to men and women who are has this sort of like this natural energy about them, right? So a lot of like these kids on the street um young kids work for me and they call it BDE or that, you know, and that's the thing. It's like, Oh, that's just BDE right there. And now like, as you're describing your mother, she had that energy that sort of like, you don't fuck with me. It's like, yeah, yeah. but it's regal. It's calm. Um, Yeah. It's feminine. It was very feminine feminine. too though. Yeah. 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 So that term is not to, you know, there's, I'm sure there's a female, terminology that that reflects the same idea but it's it's subtle it's hidden it's not something that you can see but it's something that you're you can you can feel and you're you respect it yeah 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 now um do you does your family keep in touch with any of the people the 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 guys that came through the pool hall 
My, my parents do with some, but not really. Um, there are some people who I would run into later in life, but now because I'm an adult and I look different, um, they're like, oh my gosh, you were that girl. And, um, and that has been really interesting because they remember my mom, my, they remember my mom in a certain way. Like, oh, I remember your mom. She was always so happy. She always had this beautiful smile. Your dad, he was an asshole. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. And he was, I mean, it's true. Like it's, but, um, but, but everyone trouble with any of the guys because they've viewed him as an, no, because he never stepped in to diffuse any of that tension. It was mostly my mom. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I really think that it, yeah, he didn't, he didn't get involved in that kind of stuff. I mean, he's a super hot tempered, but he, I never saw him. He didn't take it out on the customers for sure, but he didn't get involved. He was kind of like this, like neutral party. Um, so, you know, he was respected in the sense that a lot of people would come to him and ask for advice and stuff like that as a successful business person. But, um, but he was never the one to diffuse that kind of tension. At least that's not what I witnessed in all the years that I was there they might tell you something different. Um, right, right. Yeah. So he's, it's smart. I think he probably had it figured out like the hierarchical sort of boundaries that they, they both yeah. Had. Yeah. And during this whole time growing up, did you ever have an idea of what Vietnam, the actual country was like at the time? Because you're like seeing all these Vietnamese people, but you've never been to Vietnam at that time growing up. Did you have a sort of a, a, a fantasy or a, in your mind, what it would be like? I imagined it. Um, so I went back in 1992 or 93. I can't remember the exact year. I was 12 or 13, maybe 11, somewhere between 11 and 13. Before going, I imagined it to be very poor. Um, and yeah, I just, my, I remember my parents being like, you know, don't waste a single thing of rice in your bowl, like lift the last grain of rice because there's so many poor people. They, you know, like in Vietnam, everybody's so poor. And, um, and I remember at that time when we went back to Vietnam, it was my, my view of it was that it was still very poor. I mean, my family lived in, um, homes, but like, you know, there were still, they weren't like built up yet at that time. Um, so they were more like shacks and, um, I remember, I mean, I remember meeting my grandmother and grandfather on my dad's side and they were both just really loving um, and quite calm and not nearly as temperamental as my own parents. And so I often thought I, that trip made me think a lot about, you know, how war does something to met Vietnamese men in particular, because um, my grandfather was never, my grandfather was so easygoing and so loving and so happy compared to my own father who was like, who now I think, you know, has some mental health issues maybe from, you know, this war that I think many men have as a result of, you know, experiencing the trauma of war. But um, I just, that was so, that stands out to me a lot was like, even though they were poor and even though they struggled a lot, there was a lot of love. And my, and my grandmother, was really well liked and she was super generous and giving and you know the ho house was just open like people would flow in and out and you know come eat she was just very sharing um 
so it was, you know, and at that time when I went back, you know, there was still like sit lows on the street. And I remember my sister and I rode around on them and motorbikes were a luxury. Um, most of the streets were dominated by bicycles and, you know, we packed like peanut butter and spam and M&Ms um, because we were these American kids who couldn't really eat Vietnamese food yet at the time, like, you know, and we were afraid of the water and stuff like that. But um, yeah, I mean, I think I just imagined and then saw that it was a pretty poor, I guess, um, at least my family's version of what Vietnam is and was at the time. 92 was really early. Mm hmm. What, why did they just wanted to visit their parents or, you know, and what part of it? Da Nang. Yeah. So we spent a few days in Saigon where my sister and I got to have a pizza, which was nice. Um, but in Da Nang, there wasn't anything like that. I remember my sister and I had a hamburger, which was like really expensive in Da Nang at the time on some boat on the beach somewhere. And it was like a real luxury because at that time we had been there for a month and we were just dying to have a hamburger and French fries. And it was the nastiest hamburger I think we've ever had. <laughs> it was like, instead of ground up meat, it was just like the, like, you know, like, I think of like, you know, pho thai meat or something put into a bread. Yeah. Um, and the potatoes were nasty, but, but then it still felt like a luxury to have that hamburger because it was so expensive. Um, but yeah, that's what I, I remember. And then after that first trip, how often were you going back? I never went back. Um, I went back. The first time I went back was as an adult in 2005. And I went by myself that time which um, was really eye-opening because um, I don't know what it was. I mean, I graduated from college and I just had it in me. Something said like, I need to go back. And so I, for a graduation present, I had saved up some money that I made in college and I asked my parents for money for a plane ticket to go. And they were really reluctant to let me go by myself. They were just like, oh my gosh, you have to like, you know, bribe people when you go in and it's not safe and you're going to get robbed and this and that. And when I went back as an adult by myself, I didn't really connect with family too much. Um, I traveled from Hanoi to Saigon, primarily backpacking the way white people do, did at the time. I bought a Lonely Planet book and used this Lonely Planet to kind of travel around by myself. And um the version of Vietnam that I saw was shockingly quite wealthy. Um, and it was not as poor as it was when I saw it. My family certainly wasn't as poor, but, um, you know, it was much, much more modern and developed and, and dynamic. And it had this energy about it that time um, that, it was a country on the rise and everyone was like hustling and people, you just knew you could feel the energy on the streets. Like everybody had this like market street sense and like, it's, I really loved it. Like, I think being there is what made me love markets, like to, you know, go in and bar. My mom was so good at that, like go in and bargain and know how to get, you know, there's something fun about that back and forth. Um, and but I will say that when I went back that time, particularly when I was in Hanoi, 
it made me really think about the war in a very different way. And, and I know that I say this and it's really sensitive to a lot of people. Um, and I might get accused when people see this of being like a communist sympathizer, which I think is very extreme and a bit too harsh, but I started to think about the war in a much more critical lens. And I started to wonder why the version of history that I got in the US was very different from the version that I was seeing there on the ground. Um, and I was just trying to understand, I mean, I was, it felt to kind of be at that age and to try to understand and understand it in a different language was a really challenging. And when you're Vietnamese American and you're in the North, like people also filter what they say because they're not sure how you're going to accept what they say too. And you're not sure if, if you ask questions, if you're going to offend them. And so there's so many limitations because you can't have like an open conversation about it because everyone's sussing out like which side of the war were you was your family on and what history were you given? And, um, but it was the first time that I really thought like, wow, you know, um, there's something about like being anti-colonial and, you know, pushing back against Western hegemony. And I realized that these are theoretical things that have played out in very complicated ways in people's real lives. But I think what I was missing at the time and still in, in so many ways now is that kind of nuance that when there's such deep fracturing around a war, you can't have those conversations or you it, it requires multiple generations later. Can I ask you a question? Where you were done with college at that point, right? Asian yeah. Studies, right? Mm -hmm. So that probably gave you some context to question this sort of feeling that you had? It did, but it didn't because I remember taking this theory class in college and I remember um, studying Marx and in the sociology class, which was taught by a Filipino American professor, I think he was Filipino. I like, I was like, okay, I like in the, on the U S side, particularly for, for sociology, right? Like Marxism is something held up as like an ideal that we should all strive for. And, you know, it's about like <sighs> thinking about equality across classes. Um, and but I remember at one point going to the professor and saying like, I'm really confused because like my parents are super anti-communist and, um, or at least like the Vietnamese community I grew up in in Orange County, like, you know, anytime someone had this sort of like the Vietnamese flag up or a picture of Ho Chi Minh up, there was like massive protests and people felt very strongly against this. And so how am I reading like this version of communism and how are all these people saying that this is so terrible? And he didn't have an answer. And when I went back to Vietnam, I, I, I didn't get an answer. It took me a long time to kind of like untangle those two and, and, and think about it. But I would say like five or six years. Um, and then to just sort of recognize that, you know, what was an ideal didn't ever play out in practice in, in like, you know, um, and it was, it had huge consequences for people's lives um, negatively and positively, right. Like depending on which side you were on, but, um, but I think that like a 10,000 foot view of it is also one of just like, wow, this is a small country that's never had, uh, that's been able to sort of like fight off forms of colonialism and hegemony, even at the, I mean, even though you can recognize that it came at the cost of so many lives internally. Right. And, 
that, you know, like there are a lot of people that are very like pro-capitalist and like pro-markets because they're, because so much was stolen from them under that regime. Like there's no, so there are ideals that didn't ever play out perfectly in practice. Um, but ones that I really felt confused by um, and felt like I wanted to learn more about, but I was um, crippled because there was a language barrier, right? So it's either, for me as a Vietnamese American, it's either like, you really have to like learn Vietnamese and study Vietnamese and like read that version of it, or you get the American version, which was a history written primarily by white guys. Right. And, or a history by Vietnamese Americans that is like just very anti-communist, anti-war. And so to like get multiple, um, to look at it through a kaleidoscope, through multiple lenses was really hard to get. And I didn't really know where to go or how to get that. And even today with all the tools and all of the ways that we communicate, we're still not really allowed to talk about this shit. Yeah, it's no. not fair. It's I can hide, yeah. you know, uh, my family. Um, people are telling me like, there's certain areas you can't talk about. There's certain things. Well, why not? Because things we can't we can't yeah. communicate in a nuanced way. We can't break things down and disagree. This is ludicrous. It is, and it's really scary because um, my, you know. The, that generation is going to die. Yeah. And, um, but I, you know, I think about this too, because I think about this in Vietnam, like how many people our age in Vietnam know anything about the war? And I can tell you that not very many people do, right? Like, so it's two, it goes two ways, right? Like, um, I think more Vietnamese American children know because their parents are so adamant about passing this history down. But a lot of people who are our age, who grew up who are who've grown up in Vietnam now like yeah sure they learn it, it, it but there isn't the same kind of emotional attachment to it or a way of identifying with it the same way their parents did right like there's so many people our generation who have who identify this way because their parents do not because they came to it came to these evaluations themselves right and so not that I don't think that that refugee war history is important, but I think we I think we we are now at a place where you know so many years later we need to move beyond like recollection and telling that history to to like understanding like where are we where are we now and what does it mean? And I'm not saying that those oral histories don't matter and are aren't important, but I'm what I'm saying is that like the conversation needs to evolve a little bit. I have a feeling sometimes that the people that are our generation in Vietnam view the war like the way an American would view the British getting kicked out of the founding years, like in 1776 or 1770 or whatever yeah. the founding of the United States. It's like yeah. it's such ancient history that ain't got yeah. nothing to do with me. It's yeah. far removed from them, which, yeah. you know, it's like yeah. so many so many people in Vietnam go about their daily lives and they're not affected, but there's different pressures that we as Vietnamese Americans have. We have this like, we have this external identity issue of being assimilating or having to assimilate. And then we're like thinking about like where the voices of our parents are in our head as well. There's so much things that are going on that, um, you know, when I go back to Vietnam and I hang out with people my age, there's, there's, it's nothing. Yeah. yeah. It's on the radar. 
It's like yeah. To them. It's like, what? What do you? Yeah. Why do you even care about that? Yeah. Um, yeah. But here in the U.S., it's just sort of it's so fresh and raw to yeah. our generation. And I think our parents' generation are actually the young ones because yeah. people who came to, to Vietnam in their, in their 60s, who yeah. 20, 30 years ago, but yeah. they were high ranking um, of the elite yeah. class that you know, they have died and passed off. And, and, and our conversation is changing, but it's not, to me, it's not fast enough. Yeah, I, I agree, I agree. And I'm glad that we're talking about this. I, I don't know how many people are really interested in hearing like this dialogue. So, but either. It, you know, because it's sort of like I don't know if people are getting fatigued about this identity conversation. But it, I don't think we've talked about it enough. Yeah, yeah. Um. So you come back to Vietnam in 2005, and you start to you you how how much time did you spend in vietnam that year the summer quite a bit of time time yeah yeah the summer and with no direction at all with no sort of idea of like you're just drawn to to go on vacation there i mean i was um i was i needed a break so i was going from undergraduate to grad school directly um and i needed to just get a shift of headspace, I needed a break. Um, there, so, so yeah, I mean, I went, I was on my own for a big part of it. I would say like, you know, um, the first, at least the first half of it. And then it gets complicated because, um, you know, in the second half of it, I um, developed a romantic relationship with somebody there who was Vietnamese American. Um, also in academia. And um, then it became, in some ways, like the way I came to Vietnam was through his eyes too. Um, and and I, I have to say that like, it's something weird to like fall in love there and fall in love with the place um, because it's really hard to untangle the two a bit. Um, and so, yeah, I think I was, it was, I found it to be like so enchanting and so dynamic and exciting. And I was so young, I was traveling for the first time, but I just remember feeling like the place is so cosmopolitan and I wanted to like take in as much of it as I could. Um, Can you share with me how the first half of the trip felt versus the second half after meeting him, how it affected that change? I think the first half of the trip um, was really about me learning how to be comfortable traveling on my own. It was really the first time I traveled by myself. And something about that being 21, it was really daunting, like just figuring out how to get around, like where to get money, you know, where you're going to sleep, what you're going to eat, how you're going to interact with people, who, what random strangers you're going to meet on the way. Um, and at the time, like, because our parents were so skeptical, you're always worried about getting duped every which way, right? Like, I don't worry about that now going back, but at that time, you're just like, oh, some taxi driver is going to rip you off or some hotel is going to, you know, it's just, you're always like guarded. And so, but I think that I needed that time by myself there because I needed to feel empowered to um, 
like learn history on my own, to travel on my own, to like explore on my own, to go to places that I wanted to get museums and, um, you know, like the mausoleum and, you know, like historical sites, um, that I, you know, people have different tastes, right? Like different tempos of how they want to travel. And then I think when I fell in love and towards the half latter half of the, it became really about like seeing the country through his eyes and, um, through, you know, um, like just how he lived it and the space he created. And I will say that it, it opened my eyes up to a way of imagining how you could have a life split between two places, how you could live in the United States and have a, you know, envision a a long-term life in Vietnam. And at that time I thought, wow, this is so perfect. Like I could just, you know, um, I I really want to spend more time here. I want to like, you know, and I, I could, you know, be an academic and live my, spend my summers and winters in Vietnam and the, you know, rest of the year in the U S and this is perfect. I found somebody else who really wants this life too. And, um, and it, and what he introduced me to, I would say was like Vietnamese art and music, but it was more like pop art. So like in the United States, like, you know, when my parents were running a pool hall, I learned a lot of like Vietnamese music, but it was Vietnamese American music, like Paris by night, you know, that kind of stuff that, um, but there was also like pop artists who are rising in Vietnam, who are, who I remember, I just loved going to see. Cause like you could, what I loved at that time is like, you could go see the most famous pop star. And then at the end of the show, they would walk out and get on their motorbike and ride home, you know, like celebrities, there wasn't the same kind of like celebrity status where like, you like could get close to a celebrity there, right? Like you could sit up cl- and and people like you know Dan Bin Hung and I was like. I'm gonna say and- him. I literally saw Dan Bin Hung with 15 other people in a small bar. Yeah. And minutes later or years later, it's like this celebrity culture is. Yeah. Dan Bin Hung was yeah, but he yeah did a lot of bars. I mean yeah yeah, and and he would sing until the last person left. Like he was so, he had such a passion for his craft and um, actually all of those artists did, right? Like, yeah, during the- Yeah, yeah. And I just really, really loved that space a lot. And I learned, I learned a lot through music, through art, through culture. Um, And I think that that's something I wouldn't have had without- you know, that relationship, I would say. Um, and so it was, it was very different. Uh, um, uh, but still like, yeah, I would, that I would say that's how I would say that's the shift. So you weren't appreciating, uh, sort of the, the regular cultural sort of poppy things until you sort of met. I didn't know how to find it. Or I didn't know where to go. I mean, I didn't know where to go, right? right like right. I didn't There's no know access to it, right? Yeah, and at that time in Vietnam too, like everyone had lists. Like there wasn't the, the internet was kind of new, right? So it wasn't there wasn't like now you can you can get like the best food places to go, but at that time like you really value people who had local knowledge, right? right. 
And he had a lot of that local knowledge, like where the best restaurants were, where cool cafes were, where you could go to read and, you know, like what beach towns, how to get there, you know, like which hotels, like those kinds of things like really required a certain kind of like local know-how, local knowledge that you don't really need now that, you know, it was, you, you could only get then by being there and experiencing it and building it yourself. And, um, now you don't need that. I mean, it's just so different with the, our iPhones and getting around, I mean, just even getting around, like if you think about like driving around the streets at that time with no iPhone and maps to give you directions, like somebody has to know the way somebody has, you know, those day-to-day things. I think, um, I was very lucky because, because I had some, it was almost like somebody who knew the place so well and was introducing me to it, you know? So you leave that summer and you come back to the United States. Um, what what next? You you're done with college. You know, do you yeah. have a job? And- so I will say this. So that summer, so I I knew that I was going to start a PhD program um, coming back. So I was I was going to start my first year in a PhD program in sociology. But that summer, um, I didn't live with the you know, person I started to develop a relationship with. I was living, I rented a a room in a house with two white guys who were English teachers. And one of the guys um, had brought in a woman that was a sex worker. And, um, And there's something about being Vietnamese American or being Vietnamese, being a Vietnamese woman at that time, living in a house with two white guys in Saigon, like all the neighbors totally thought I was a sex worker. Like, it was just so inappropriate, you know, like, what is this girl doing living in this house? Why is she coming home at two, three in the morning after going out to bars and stuff? And having grown up in such a strict household, like I went out, I, you know, I wanted to explore and these guys were like, come with me. So I was like, why not? Right. Like I just didn't have the same kind of, um, errors of respectability that I felt like I should have in the United States probably. And so, um, that's what really kind of opened up my world to um, the sex industry and sort of like the sex trade. Um, but I was very naive at the time. And, beca- and I really I really envisioned the sex trade as being one of trafficking. Um, and so even after that summer, after leaving, I started thinking a lot about like, okay, like, you know, that's when we're starting to see all these narratives of human trafficking. And I started thinking like, okay, where are all the trafficked women? You know, um, here are these women that I'm meeting that are sex workers, but then there must be women that are like, you know, what's the dynamic? Are they forced? Are these pimps stealing their money? Like what's going on? So that summer sparked, it like put this light bulb in my head of, hey, it would be really interesting to like study this industry. But I had to go back to the United States to to, um, figure out like, was there a viable research question in that topic? Like, had people studied this before? Like, does, has anyone studied it in Vietnam? Like, is this something that would, you know, make for a strong dissertation later? Like, could I graduate with a topic like this? Like, you know, um, would I get a job if I studied something like this later in academia? So I feel like there was this, you know, in, in the academy, you sort of have to figure out like, can I do this? Like, you know, who's done this before? Theoretically, are there any gaps? And then, but there's also a part. So I feel like every research project has two sides of a story. One is your personal journey to landing onto that topic. And the other is sort of like the theoretical journey, which is like, what is, what is it? What knowledge are we pursuing here? And like, how does a study, how does this study advance our knowledge in some way? 
And you have to be able to answer both of those questions to do a project really, really well. Because I think some people have like really smart topics, but they don't have the passion that comes. There's no passion. And so it, it lacks, right? Or some people have a passion, but they haven't been able to identify what gaps there are in our knowledge to justify like that as a course of study. And so that's something that you are always like asking yourself, right? Um, so I will, I will say that it sparked a light bulb that then transformed my life for the next 10 years. I mean, now it's been like since 2005. So, um, you know, what, 15, 16 years of going back and forth to Vietnam on multiple projects um, that it, yeah, I, I think it was, it was the initial spark um, but it took a lot more to, to actually launch a project. And when you say launch a project, that sounds very formal. Um, it sounds more like an exploration of a lifestyle or a vignette. You, you're trying to discover this vignette. But when you say project, it sounds very formalized. Like, okay, I'm going to enter into this space formally. But it wasn't like that in the early years, right? It wasn't. In the early years, I sort of, I really stumbled on it. Um, and I thought like, okay, this would be a really interesting topic, but let me go and read. Like, what have people written about the sex industry in Vietnam? Um, what have people written about it, the sex industry broadly in Southeast Asia? What have people have said about it out around the world? And at the time, um, the only scholar that was really studying it was Tu Hung Nguyen Ba, who's now a professor at UCLA, who wrote this um, really great book. Um, but her book wasn't just on the sex industry, it was like looking really at women across class. Um, and sex was one part of it, right? Um, and it was, I was really inspired by that work. Um, she has this framework called Hooking Economies in that book where she really kind of talks about She's, I think, the early pioneer of thinking about, like, you know, the sex industry and its ties to business. Um, and so I, you know, but I didn't think about it that way. I really was really interested in, like, okay, the literature basically says that there's this narrative of human trafficking and that all of these women are victims and that there are, like, you know, we, we really need to, like, rescue them. And, and that, in many ways, aligned with a lot of my feminism stuff, because you think like, oh, there's these white guys that are going back to Asia and it's this colonial, like, you know, new form of hegemony and ways, of, you know, right? Like it very much aligns with that feminism of that time. Um, so I really thought that I was going to go back and try to find victims of trafficking and tell their story and narrate their story. What I found was very different um, from what I thought I was going to find. And that took me on a totally different journey. Um, but but uh, like it took me on a journey of studying sex workers who had actually a great deal of agency. Um, and I think there's a difference between a traffic victim and a sex worker that I've spent years of my career trying to nuance and parse out um, that I, I do in my first book. But like to really think about, you know, why would somebody choose to enter into this life and in this world? And, and actually there's historical precedent for this, you know, but it's such a stigmatized topic that we don't talk about it in that way. Like either you're a victim of trafficking or you're a vixen, right? Like, or you're a criminal of, of sex work. And so there isn't a way of thinking about someone as occupying this middle position somewhere. And, um, I will say that, you know, even though my book has done quite well in the aftermath, at the time that I was doing the research, it was not a very popular topic. And I was discouraged 
quite a bit from doing it. Like, you know, I didn't want to become marginalized in the, in sociology as somebody who studies the sex industry as a woman who studies the sex industry. And also already like studying Vietnam is a small country. It, like you're marginal as like doing area studies work, right. Um, in the broader discipline. And so um, it wasn't something that was that I ever imagined to be like a hot topic. I really did it because I, I was passionate about the topic and because I was just it was I was motivated by a, a real sense of intellectual curiosity. Um, I didn't have grand expectations. I mean, my career now is like a dream. I could never have imagined that this would be my career now. But um, but I but it was that, you know, at the time I was just really curious and um, so I built out the project that was like, you know, looking for trafficking. I went back, you know, a couple summers and winters later, I didn't find trafficking. So I was like, okay, maybe this is a study about sex workers. And it's- um, Interrupt real quick. Mm-hmm. When you say that you went to go look for it, how, how could you really explore if there was trafficking rings or if there were pimps, if there was- like a real strangle hold on the on the women there when you were probably not you kept out because I mean you know this is the, I think this is the great myth of the time is that like one of the things that makes trafficking sex trafficking so complicated is that there is this narrative that all these women have been kidnapped and forced across borders and that they have been um you know, exploited in this way that they're underground, right? That narrative is what allows for a whole cottage industry around of nonprofit organizations to exist around this topic. I'm not, I'm going to say this, like, I'm not saying that it doesn't exist, but I'm saying that it doesn't exist at the numbers that those nonprofit organizations claim at the time. And so there's a narrative, there's like a popular narrative, and then there's a reality on the ground. And the narrative that was constructed primarily outside of Vietnam, uh, you know, like in the United States mostly, um, and by anti-trafficking organizations was one that was easy to um, believe, right? It's like poor third world women victims. And by the way, it's over there in this country, over there, you can't find them. And I think there's something very racist about those kinds of narratives um, because they were constructed off of very very little to almost no data. And when I started to circuit nonprofit organizations claiming to work on these causes, most all of them were working on issues to prevent human trafficking because they themselves could not identify victims of trafficking either. So it was years of just like going to organization after organization and being like, why are they so coy about who they're working with, about like their victims? And and they would say, oh, we're protecting them. We're, you know, we're protecting. That wasn't the case. I mean, if you look at Somali mom in Cambodia, that's a huge example of just the fraud around this sex. I mean, Nicholas Kristoff and Cheryl Wu Dunn, like all the way up to all these celebrities. Right. And you have to ask yourself why. And, you know, at the same time, I will say that 
some of the work that those organizations were doing wasn't bad. I mean, many of those organizations were working with women who are victims of domestic violence, but it's easier and sexier to raise money around sex trafficking than it is to say, I'm raising money to help women who are victims of domestic violence, right? Like, or help women escape factories or, you know, labor trafficking, like labor trafficking was one where there were lots of victims of labor trafficking, yet nobody could seem to raise any money to work on those causes. And so I think that, you know, where I came in, it was like, I didn't have a lot of friends, right? The feminists didn't want to hear my arguments that women had agency in the sex industry and all the sex trafficking advocates and heroes didn't want to hear the narrative that these women have agency either, right? Like, and I'm like, look, all of these things can coexist in the same world, but like as an academic, my job is to collect data and and report what I find. And if what I'm finding is very different from the narrative that's out there, I have an obligation to report that and actually like to respect the women that I study, to share their narratives and report as they share with me. The last thing I will say about this is that the, 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 that whole thing of like, there's no way you can find out until you go in. Well, I did go in, like I went in and worked in four different bars for 15 hours, for 12, 15 hours a day. Um, for nearly 15 months, because I thought like I was convinced, okay, I'm not, if I'm never going to see this from the outside and, and many, many, many academics, women, nonprofit organization workers would say the same thing. Oh, you can't see it because you're on the outside. So then I decided like, okay, let me, let me get in on the inside and see. And, and what's ironic about this And I never put these two together until years later, but what I saw, and I think that the reason why I was able to see the humanity in those spaces and to see the women for how they wanted to be seen is because my parents, I worked in this pool hall with my parents because I didn't come to the field as a snobby elite academic because I was a working class girl out of her, like, you know, a fish, you know, out of water in academia that I related far more to the women in the, in these bars as people who I grew up with than I did to other academics who were in Vietnam with me at the time or other academics in the U S who like, you know, uh, like have a certain kind of, um, elitism and arrogance to that, to them, um, that, you know, so I, I really think that there was something about my own subject position and my own who I was and what I was bringing to the table that brought that out that allowed me to see a lot of that. Right. Like, I, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because if you think about like people who run these nonprofit organizations and it's not a ding against them, really, but it's like. They come from elite backgrounds, you know, they were educated at some of the most, some of the best schools and they, they pride themselves on that. So, so there's a huge gulf, you know, of of like where their lives are versus the lives of the people that they're rescuing. And I feel like, um, certainly there was a huge gulf for my life. And I definitely occupy a position of privilege now more than ever. And I certainly did occupy a position of privilege at that time too, but that gap was, I think, smaller, um, because of sort of like this working class background that I grew up in. And I will say that one bar where I worked, um, the owner of that bar knew my parents because he had frequented my parents' billiard. And so there are these ties, right? Like across transnational boundaries. And I think that like the kinds of people that understand that billiard scene are the same kinds of people that are going to show up in the 
bars that I was in. Right. And so maybe there, and I'm, I'm, I'm saying this, like maybe with a big, maybe there's victims of trafficking in other places. I will say this, that like a lot of those organizations who were trying to identify victims of trafficking in the city, like in, in Saigon and Hanoi, couldn't find them there. So they went to the village, couldn't find them there. So they went to the border of Vietnam and China. I mean, couldn't find them there. So it's just like, you know, went to other places. And so like the way that that whole narrative works and functions is if, if you identify in more, more remote, faraway places that nobody else can get to. But the reality of it is like, it's actually very hard to kidnap somebody and force them to engage in this kind of work against their will. Am I saying that sex work is not exploitive and that is not constrained within institutions of patriarchy? Absolutely not, right? It, it is, but that's very different from saying like, oh my gosh, we need to rescue these women um, because rescuing these women comes with huge consequences for their lives. What that often means actually is that there are police raids on places that are legitimate businesses. And in fact, uh, what I will say this, this is related to the Atlanta shootings. I just wrote, I don't know if you've read, but I wrote this piece in Vox, but Many of those businesses operate as legitimate massage parlors, but because of this whole human trafficking narrative, a lot of those immigrant businesses have become scrutinized by law enforcement, I think unfairly, right? And so we can stereotype them as, you know, illegitimate businesses where illegal things happen, where sex is being traded. But actually, if you look at the age of those women that we, we've now uncovered, and if, you know, that's a stereotype, that's a very racist stereotype, one that has been perpetuated by trafficking organizations and advocates who have a role in shifting the narrative that way so that now law enforcement is going there to try to identify victims of trafficking, right? Like, and again, that's not to say that it doesn't exist there at all, 100%, but not on the scale and in the, in the, in the ways that it's been so grossly exaggerated. I want to ask a very, um, and this is from a very humble position and not meant to insult you at all. Did you ever come close to finding anybody who was trafficked? No. I wish, I wish. I wish because I think that I um, I would have more uh, c like empathy or compassion for people working on that end. Um, and I do, I mean, I will say that like, I really respect the work that, you know, GZF is doing with Pacific Links. Like I, I, you know, I think she's been there for many, many years and the work that their organization is doing and, and they've shifted their work a lot, you know, over the years too. They, they do a lot more labor trafficking stuff as I see it from the outside. Um, but, you know, no, I mean, that's the honest answer. Like, and, and I, I, I wish I had, because then I can say, okay, you know, it does exist. I found one or two of them and, you know, this is where you can go and here's the resources and stuff, but no, I, I didn't. Um, and I would be lying if I said I did. Yeah, I'm sorry. I had to ask that because, you know, you spend all those years on the ground and not one time did you find it then? Yeah, I, I mean, I can move on. I mean, I, yeah, it's the whole time I'm listening to you. I'm like, you couldn't find just one situation where somebody was being held against their will. No, no, I mean, no. So how did you, um, 
really sign up to work at these places. You walk in and just say, hey, I'm, this is, here's, I mean, I'm using it as a figurative, figurative, yeah. like, here's my badge, you know, or you just go in sort of like, hey, I need a job. So I was young. I mean, I was 26 at the time. And actually at 26, I was 10 years older than most of the women that were working there. So now I'm like 20 years older. Um, I was very nervous. So I remember getting my motorbike and just riding around on the outside of the bars. Um, what I did is sort of, I would say like a survey of the field. Like I would just ride around and, and locate like, where are these bars in the city, like how do they fit into the broader landscape of the city? At first I went in as a patron, like, you know, as a, you know, just going in with some guy friends who I, cause I, who knew I was interested in studying it. And so I would go with them, like, you know, help, like try to help get my, you know, shake some nerves off. And then finally, eventually I just, I just said, look, I'm a researcher, um, studying this, and I would really like to work because I would really like to understand and I, I don't need to get paid, um, but I would like to understand, you know, have a deeper understanding. And the first bar that I worked in was, a, so the guy who owned it, um, he was really, he was like, a, he was kind of like a big brother. I mean, he reminded me of the guys in my parents' billiard and it's not ironic because he did he knew my parents and he had played in their billiard I don't think my parents knew him as well right. but he knew them for sure and he remembered me as a little girl running around um there so he sort of just took me in and I think he was kind of like why are you doing this like you are you know a highly educated woman I mean, you have a college degree at least like why are you doing this um, and I think at first he thought I would last like a day or two. Yeah, when you, I'm sorry to interrupt, but when you were doing this, what were you exa exactly doing at the establishment? Yeah, I was, I was working behind the bar, serving men drinks, like, you know, doing pretty much everything the women do in that bar. Like, um, I really subjected myself to things that I would say sucked at the time. I mean, it wasn't like, I didn't enjoy it for sure. Um, but I would, I really wanted to understand. And I thought that was the only way to really get a view behind the scenes, to get a view in the back door, to understand what happens like when after hours, before hours, what happens off stage versus on stage, I guess you could call it. Um, so uh, yeah. And then I, you know, I worked in, I worked in three different ones and spent a lot of time in a fourth. Um, so then from there, I just, then, and then a lot of bar owners know each other. They frequent each other's bars. And so then, you know, there I met this other woman who was like, oh, come. Um, she had a bar that catered to Western men. She was like, oh, come work in my bar. So I, then I spent a couple months working in her bar um, through that connection. And then um, there was a one guy who came to the bar um, who by serendipity, um, had a lot of like, you know, connections. And so I, I, I moved to a bar that catered to like very wealthy Vietnamese and Asian businessmen after that. So I worked in three of these different bars for several months at a time, um, every day. And, um, and it was an adjustment. Like I didn't know how to looking back, I didn't know how to wear my makeup. I didn't know what dresses to wear. I did. It was just like, you're just thrown in and you figure it out as you go. 
And definitely like, you know, there's these experiments, right? Where when you go in and you play the role, eventually people forget that you're, you're the academic in that role and they treat you the way they do. And so even men who I was friends with, like I bit few men who I was friends with um, outside who knew me in the United States, like they were just like, oh my God, you look so vulnerable on the other side of this bar. Like, why are you doing this? Like, why, what are you doing? You know? Um, but I just did it. And it's, I mean, I, I, I didn't, I, for me as an academic, um, I didn't, I learned a lot, but I didn't enjoy it for sure because I had other options. Um, I wasn't like, and I also would say I was the least attractive. I was short and fat in those spaces. I was old. And so it was also like a feeling of just being completely undesirable or invisible in that space when you're around like very beautiful, almost like model looking women across all of these different spaces. Um, and you're told every day, like that you're fat, old, ugly, whatever. I mean, I like in some of those higher end bars, I would sit with the men's children and like, as their like mom or whatever, because I was so old, you know? Um, so it wasn't, but, but I learned a lot, right. I learned a lot about, I, I really wanted to study the interactions between men and women. I really wanted to understand like their deeper relationships. I really wanted to understand how this business worked. Like I wanted to understand if these women were ever abused. Like I wanted to understand like, you know, what the relationship was like with the bar owners and all of that. And, and I write about this in my book to the best of my ability, right. Um, in terms of just reporting it as I experienced it. Um, yeah. I have, I have a few questions. I've had a lot of questions. The first question is you are not one of them. You, uh, from the ex outward experience appearance that you've described, you're not one of them. You don't speak like one of them. Um, you're not actually working for, to get paid. So all of these things actually set you sort of aside and you're the other, or you're not. Yeah. You're not on the you're not on the uh, the field uh, to play, so you don't really get sort of like, I think initially you won't probably get the inside scoop, right, so to speak. So how do you study or how do you integrate your the methodology to kind of like take? You have to spend a lot of time there, right? So I will tell you this: my body totally transformed. I lost the weight. I looked totally different. I, they taught me how to do my makeup. They taught me how to dress. I mean, in many of these places, um, there are ven there's a whole economy that supports these places. People bring food, people do your nails, people, um, bring, you know, clothes. Like at that time, like there were a lot of, um, people who would go to Korea and Japan and buy clothes and then sell them the back door to these bars. So, over time you learn, right? Like you go in there and you just adapt to the place, to your environment is really what it is. I will never say that I fully adapted. I was like, I never became a pretty girl in there. Like, I, I feel like I just like got by barely enough to pass. I will say that in the highest end bar that catered to really wealthy people, very few people believed that I, of the women believed that I was a researcher, even though I I told them I was, they thought I was being like an arrogant, like some thought I was a loser who couldn't get a job in anywhere else. And so I took, I, I had to do this to like get by in Vietnam. Other people thought it was like, because my skin was dark at the time. They thought I was like, um, you know, came from the border of Cambodia, which is why I spoke English very well. 
Um, I couldn't sing for my life. So I, the only way I got by singing was like singing American songs because like local people thought that was interesting that I could pronounce English words perfectly, but like I had, I was so tone deaf. So I feel like you find ways in that space to like, try to make yourself try to find your place in it. Right. Um, but you're never going to be a full insider. And, but I think it's the closest you get from being a complete outside, you know, away from being a complete outsider. Um, I don't, yeah, that's what I would say about it. So it, it took a lot of time um, and it took investment of hours. And, and I will say that like the turning point in every single one of those bars was when I did not um, act like I was better than those women in terms of how men would treat us. And so I didn't, I wasn't like, oh, I'm this prop. I mean, there were moments where, where men would say like, you have certain kind of manners, like you don't really belong here. You like, you know, but I didn't, I didn't, um, I didn't act that way. You know what? I, I didn't act like I was above it. So I never was like, oh, I'm not going to do that because I'm too good for this. Or like, oh, I'm not going to drink because, so I subjected myself to a lot of shit and there are men, Vicky men, you know, Vietnamese men who, um, were shocked, I think I would say, and would always be like, are you really going to, like, are you really doing this? You know, like, and over time, I think I started to forget that this was not my real life. And they started to forget that this was not my real life. And it, I really have to say that it wasn't until I moved back to America and took some time to like decompress from being in the field that I was like, okay, this is really not my life. Like I really needed to, I really needed to like hit the eject button and get out because it had gone too deep into it, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense because a lot of us watch movies and we know what being a mole in the inside is like. I mean, that's sort of like the imagination running wild for me right now. But going back to this sort of academic way of looking at it, like the methodology, like did you keep spreadsheets? Did you have like survey questions? Like how yeah. study actually being conducted? Yeah. So the methodology is what we call ethnography, which is where you embed yourself in a space and you, um, you take, you know, ethnographic field notes. And so I did a combination of interviews and ethnography where, um, I interviewed, I was, I had a target number of interviews I wanted to do across each bar of men and women. So I, I did a total of 276 interviews. Um, but that was easy to do because I was in the bar for like 10 or 15 hours a day. And frankly, I just got bored. And over time of just being like, oh, hello, like sexy, this, whatever. Right. Like it just, the conversations are so dumb that like, for me, at least that the interviews was the time where I felt like I could, it was like actually stimulating my, my brain a little bit. Um, and, um, so but many of the interviews were like informal, like they took a, like, you know, some would last like one hour, some would last seven hours. Right. Um, and, and it was just sort of like getting a sense of like where people were coming from, how they got here, like, you know, what kinds of, what, you know, what relationships they formed, what, you know, and everyone was different. Right. Um, so, and then you, what it is, is like, you're, when you spend so much time immersed in a space, you start to identify patterns and practices. And so, um, the way that ethnographers operate is that they usually leave the field when they're not finding anything new anymore, when they start to see the same patterns over and over and over again, and you start to develop a framework for what it is that you're seeing, uh, like a conceptual framework for what it is that you're seeing. And so um, for me, it took about 15 months of being in the field and doing, and then, you know, 
um, you know, over 200, like really like targeted interviews of talking to people to get us to get a sense of like how they're reflecting. So you're, you're both like watching their interactions and seeing them in the space, but then asking them questions to like dig deeper, right? Like to understand what their world is like outside of here to understand like, what is it that they're doing to understand how they interpret the events that you're witnessing, right? Their interactions that you're witnessing. Um, yeah, that, that, I mean, that's the methodology. It's, it's systematic in a way, but it's, it's, it's qualitative and ethnographic and it's, and what you're really after are stories. You know, as I'm listening to you, I just hear an anthropologist, not a sociologist. It is. What, what's the sociologists do? So I would, you know, I, I, there are very, I mean, I think when you get into the, the weeds of it, what I do, what the method is very much what an anthropologist does. I think that, you know, we could get into the weeds of it and anthropologists will say like, look, you know, sociologists are so um, like have an obsession with numbers and statistics. And so no anthropologist would say I did 200 and something interviews. Right. Only a sociologist would say that, right? Like to make it seem like we're more systematic. But I, but I, I will say that the thing that differentiates me from an anthropologist was that I wasn't interested. And this is not a ding on either, either field. I, I need to say this because I, I, I really respect the work that anthropologists do. I think they go deeper. They're much more... Um, when I read the work of an anthropologist, it's, I feel like it's far more sophisticated um, in terms of like the theory building and the conceptual framework, but they're not as systematic, I think, as sociologists are. Like, I think sociologists are really pushed to say like, what is your research question? Does your data answer that question? Who did you talk to? How do you know that this is not an anomaly? How do you know? And so like to address those kinds of questions coming from more positivist thinking sociologists, anthropology leaning sociologists like myself tend to like veer in that direction. So we somehow straddle the world between anthropology and then like really positivist sociology. But how did you sort of learn this training when you're, you know, going through this, this journey, because you're sort of, you know, on the path to this PhD in sociology, but really this is all ethnographic. This is sort of anthropological uh, work. Yeah. So UC Berkeley's PhD program is very strong in ethnographic methods. And if you look at the PhDs who graduate from Berkeley, many of them do projects that are similar to mine. Um, so I had a lot of advisors who were uh, like very, who trained me basically. I mean, I was, I was definitely trained as an ethnographer and very much as a Ber you know, in a Berkeley model of ethnography um, by Berkeley sociologists. And so, you know, it's definitely other sociology departments tend to be more like lean more towards like demography or quantitative methods. I think Berkeley was very balanced across the methods at the time. And those who were more qualitative leaning were the ones who trained me. What kind of quantitative, um aspects of the research did you sort of have to to pick up on what what, what were you recording on a I would say that it's not it, I would say that it's not like it wasn't um how do I just say this? it was it wasn't it wasn't that I was quantitative it was that I you use a lot of the logics of quantitative methods so you're like 
you're wanting to know, are you, are you seeing patterns or, or like, did you just get an anomalous case? So when you asked me, right, how many people, how many people, like, did you ever see trafficking? Right. And then I would say like, okay, most people would think that trafficking is common across the board and trafficking is everywhere in Vietnam. And we need to like find them. And like, you know, Kevin Bales has this number of like 72 million women are trafficked or whatever. Right. Like the, for me, it's sort of, okay, how do we have those numbers when we can't actually find it? Like, you know, so, so what does it mean to think about the fact that like, that is, would, if it arose in my case would be an anomaly and is an anomaly, right? So how do we think about like statistical anomalies versus like what we see as like a trend or, or a, you know, and so the way that you use quantitative logics is really what it is for qualitative methods is that you're systematic in the cases that you choose and the number of interviews that you decide to do in, in trying to get to a place where you reach what we call saturation, which is that you're starting to see the same things and the same patterns over and over again. So the time comes when you've kind of collected all the data, you've collected all the stories and you're writing all of this down, but you're going in the direction of a dissertation for a PhD or the book. I mean, can you explain what the two differences are and how yeah. they sort of like fall in the timeline of what your work uh, looks like? So I went back to Berkeley. Um, so I spent 15 months in Vietnam collecting the data. I was really actually, to be honest with you, it was f- over five years of being in and out because I started getting data in summer, the summers and winters, which I would say was is called like preliminary field work where um, you're like testing the feasibility of the project to see if you could even do it before really launching the project. So you never really want to go into the field and say, I'm going to do this because what if you get there and you, you, you can't do it, right? You can't get access. You don't know. Um, so it was really fought over the course of five years. And then I went back to Berkeley and I spent one year writing. Um, which was fast. Most people take a lot longer than that. And it was writing the dissertation. And so the dissertation, I would say, is more of a piece that you, you're, you're like, it's the, it's the first draft um, of the book. And so um, the dissertation was written like a book, even though it, it, it wasn't, and you know, but it's really written for your advisor's eyes. And it's about like making a case for why your study is new and innovative and how your study contributes something to advancing the field of sociology, right? Um, and there's subfields within sociology. So for me at the time, it was about a sociology of gender and sociology of globalization and, and ethnography as a method. And really um, bringing Southeast Asia in you know, uh, and Vietnam in particular on the map of the discipline, because there were very few sociologists at the time who were even studying Vietnam and, um, and doing a project on Vietnam was very marginal at the time that I was doing it. And so what it really, the dissertation was like proving that this was a worthy study, that this was like, that, that, that this has something to contribute to like our, you know, expanding our knowledge. And then what happens is then you take the dissertation and you transform it into a book. And that took me four years of, you know, um, 
revising it to like, cause you have a different audience in mind, right? Like for an audience, for the book, your audience is a general public really. And like other academics, but um, you start to write in a way where you take a lot of the academies out, you take a lot of the theory out and you really write with the stories at the center of the book and you let the stories motivate the book and you use a theory to an- analyze. I will say this, that I didn't write a trade book. I wrote an academic book. And I will say this too about why I chose that one. I mean, you have to do that as a junior um, professor, but also I really, my goal is to show the public why sociology matters. And I feel like my metric for what a successful book is, is not awards and accolades by the discipline, even though those were great. And, I, and I'm very grateful for all of the awards my book got. But I really wanted to prove that um, the public could read a piece of sociology and understand it. And I wanted to prove that the public is a lot smarter than we imagine and not insult the reader's intelligence by dumbing the book down. And so I also wanted to write the book in a way that brings a sociological lens to, to see if there was a way that the public could understand what sociology is and why a sociological lens to a study of the sex industry was important here. And I will say that when excerpts of the book were released in Vietnam and you can find it, it went, it went like it spread like wildfire in Vietnam. And what I was most proud of, the thing that I, I feel most proud of in my career is that I think I accomplished what I wanted because it sparked this very interesting debate in the public about the merits of qualitative versus quantitative work. So when I was reading commentary and I didn't read much of it because as you could imagine, like there's also a lot of nasty critique out there too. And so I'm not going to say I'm not, a, you know, immune to that. So I did, I, I tried as much not to read that, but what I read that I found so interesting was pe- where people saying like, Real research is this research. It's not sitting behind a computer, crunching out numbers and analyzing data and being so distant from the topic, right? And that to me was like a a really important moment because it really made me feel like you can take ivory tower stuff and bring it to the public and the public is smart and intelligent enough to engage and really think about it, right? Like that they could talk about qualitative methods and quantitative methods. And this is not some kind of ivory tower speak. Yeah. I mean, you're, you know, Margaret Mead, Jane Goodall, and, you know, bringing it into a, 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 not only digestible, but like a subject that that's like, it's, it's something that you want to engage with as a man or a woman, right? It's just, it's a natural subject that has a lot of appeal. Um, I want to go back to um, sort of living that life and living that world and extricating yourself every time you come back to the States. You know, was there a process? Was there a cleansing process? Or did you need to sort of like find a, a... you know, a ritual to kind of like ease yourself back into regular society? You know, I've never talked about this. So this is the first time I'm going to talk about this and it makes me feel very vulnerable still to, um, to talk about this. So I, I'll, I'll preface it that way. Um, when I was younger and I was writing this as a dissertation and I didn't have a career, you know, or a name, I didn't have, hadn't made a name to myself. I guarded a lot of that, um, very close to the chest because um, I think that 
when you're an Asian American woman and when, or Vietnamese American woman, and when you're studying the sex industry, um, it can be, it's a very hard thing to do because it can be very titillating to um, a white male academic audience on the one hand and stigmatizing to a Vietnamese American audience. I mean, there's no, there's no, um, there's no, there's very little room for respectability any way you turn, right? Like the feminists are, are asking, why are you writing about these women with agency? So you have created enemies there. The white men are like, you know, see you as a sex object just as the way they see other sex workers, right? Vietnamese people are like, oh my gosh, I can't believe your parents allowed you to do this project. Like, what were you thinking? I mean, the whole, I mean, so, so I will say that it now, how long has it been? Almost 10 years since I've done it. Can I only now say that um, it was probably one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life in the sense that I felt very raw and very, very vulnerable. Um, I was drinking a lot. Like at the time I could put down a handle a day and, you know, thank God it was Johnny Walker blue. Cause I eventually developed a tolerance and wasn't hungover, but I was also allowing men to touch me inappropriately too. And, um, there's something about that. That's like very humiliating, even in a public space. And, you know, um, for me, right. Like, I, I think that the women around me were much stronger than I was. Um, and I think that, um, I writing the book was very therapeutic for me. Um, and it was, the process of writing the dissertation, which was the initial draft that was very cathartic. Um, but then, you know, there's, a, a, it feels like an art piece, right? Like when you think about creating art, you like lay down the first layer on the canvas and then you lay down the next layer and then you laid it. And so for me, the first layer was the dissertation. And then after the dissertation, it was like, Okay. And the dissertation was about, you know, getting the approval of my advisors and, you know, you know, getting a PhD, right? Like I was after a PhD, but after that in the book, it was, it was more about the creative process. It was like, what is my voice? What am I saying? Like, um, and, and it wasn't about me actually. It was, and this is one thing about ethnography that I think this book is different is most ethnographers make the, themselves the protagonists of their books. In my book, I'm not the protagonist and I don't figure in there very much. And I, um, and I do that because I really wanted to center the lives of the women I studied. And I really wanted to respect them and, and write about them in a way that was truthful and respectful at the same time. Meaning that I didn't want to be patronizing and, and take away their agency as a, as a elite educated woman or whatever. But I also didn't want to like play on tropes or stereotypes about their work, right? And so to do that in a nuanced way, I feel like was an art form of just like, how are you capturing the story? Like, how are you portraying them? can you try to pre present people as multidimensional characters versus like one stereotype or trope of who they are? And that nuance, I think really is my, was at the time, my craft, my, what I felt like was my art, my craft, my, my, my gift. Um, and that was very therapeutic, but I had to, um, you know, I, I'll say this, I was, I had to go through therapy. I had to like, I had to, um, I remember when I came back to the United States, my advisor, when I walked down the hall at Berkeley, my advisor was like, oh my gosh, your eyebrows, you look like a hostess worker. 
And this was a woman saying this to me, right? Like, I don't even want to know what the men were thinking. And there is something about immersing yourself in that way where it's a full body. It's like a very deeply embodied transformation that you do have to undo it and you have to find yourself again. Like, what is your style? What is your look? Like, how are you going to inhabit this space? I, and for whatever reason, whenever I present now, I'm like, uh, always like covered up like shoulders, arms, legs. And I, and it's no mistake because I do things in the academic space to like desexualize my own body because the topic itself and being an Asian woman with the topic itself sexualizes you now, like you bring on that energy by all these other men around you in the U S right. And so I, I had, I didn't say this in my book. Um, but I will say this now that I do think that it was a, there was a form of like crawling through mud. Like, I think that my career, the success of my career was built off of like crawling through mud to get this data. And, um, yeah. Cred. Yeah. And it, and, and I did, you know, I, I wish that I had a topic that gave me respectability both in the field and outside of the field as an academic, but I didn't right? like, you know, I, I, it wasn't somebody like Viet who is like, you know, who's, who's, who's respected as a, as a, as a novelist, as a writer in his field and outside, right. And as a man, right. Like, and, and, and that's not no, this is not no ding against Viet, but I'm just trying to give you like a sense of where I'm coming from in terms of just like the rawness and the, um, and, and like, I feel like being working class in the Academy also like feeling alone in that way. Um, but, but yeah, it takes some undoing and it, it takes, it took a while. Like, I think it took me, I don't know, at least a year or two, um, to, to, to really like shed that and reinvent and think about what that reinvention looks like. There's this other component that we haven't talked about yet, um, which is the financial structural side that's very integral in the sort of uh, the rest of it seems like up to this point in your career that you um, have this very deep tie ties that I wouldn't think of. Like, I'm, I'm just like, I'm thinking about the psychology of, of, of the sex worker. I'm thinking of the lifestyle, but you're actually saying that there's this whole other world that we need to really discuss and, and talk about. At what point in your journey did you start sort of linking the financial structure, the sort of like this patriarchal money side? Uh, was that from the beginning or was it like somewhere? Yeah. Can you tell me? Yeah, no. I, I fell into that on accident. Um, when I proposed the dissertation topic, I really thought that I was studying I said, I want to study sex workers and clients because nobody studies the clients. Nobody studies the men. So we vilify men. These men are, they're creepy. They're nasty. They're exploiters. They're all kinds of, they're dogs. They're cheaters. They're, you know, all kinds of stuff. Right. And not that I, and, and to be honest, I wasn't trying to humanize the men at all. Like I was just interested in studying them at the time. Right. Um, and then, um, but then the 2008 financial crisis hit. And when I was in these bars, what you were getting were headlines of like Lehman Brothers collapsing in the aftermath of that. And many of the men I studied, particularly Western men, were men who lost their jobs as a result of that financial crisis. And meanwhile, 
you're watching this financial crisis happen. Like I'm thinking of, you know, San Francisco downtown, like, you know, Virgin records is closed. Like all these businesses went belly up, like bankrupt, right. Like whole storefronts were closed. And meanwhile, Vietnam is this really dynamic economy and it's booming. It's just like, it's just, you feel it booming. And that is where the story of, and at the same time, what I realized was in the highest end bar that I worked in, it wasn't like, oh, these men were just going there for entertainment. They were actually like doing this for business. And it was about deal brokering. And it was about deal brokering in an Asian way of doing business. And so like, this is nothing new. This is what the people do in China. This is what's been done in Hong Kong and I mean, in Korea, in Japan and, you know, Thailand. And so in, in Japan. And so, but what was so fascinating to me is in that highest end bar, it wasn't Western businessmen doing deals this way. It was Asian businessmen. And I started to, th- that is what forced me to go look at the numbers. And when I went to go look at the number and here's where the quantitative data comes in. And this is where I think a sociologist is different. And as an ethnographer who's a sociologist is different from an anthropologist is that you also go look at the numbers. And I looked at the numbers and I was like, holy shit, like the majority of the foreign direct investment coming into Vietnam is not coming from the United States. It's coming from China, South Korea, Taiwan, Malaysia, Singapore. Holy cow, like what we're witnessing right now is a shift in the global political economy, which is the decline of the West and the rise of Asia. And I'll tell you this, that it took me four years to get these four words published, like Asian ascendancy and Western decline, because that, in- that caught me from the beginning too, like sex. And then that it. Yeah. And, and nobody believed me. I mean, like, I mean, gosh, the kind of, I mean, the amount of rejections I got trying to get journal articles published with those words, it was like, it was so crazy at the time. Right. I mean, when I look back and think about it and so um, so yeah, it's just, it was, um, it was really hard, but, but it was what I was finding. And so I, I just kept at it and I kept, I kept working to try to publish these ideas. And now here we are and everyone accepts that it's just common knowledge. Right. But, but at the time, how did you confirm that it was not some bias um, because how could you look at a set of numbers and affirm to yourself that it's Asian ascendancy? Because what if for some reason you couldn't account for the Western money coming in or you couldn't really precisely, you know, uh, describe or find, it's just like that, you know, uh, you didn't find the pimps or you didn't find the, the, the travel. Yeah. How, how do you know that you've exhausted all of your resource to make that four uh, word statement? It was, I mean, for, first of all, I would say I wasn't looking for it, right? So that was really surprising. And I kept asking like, where are the Western businessmen? Where are the Western businessmen in this in that market at the time? It's not that they weren't there. They were there. They just weren't doing deals as big as the Asian businessmen were doing. And there are multiple reasons for why that was the case. I mean, it was very frontier at the time and Western investors now provide exit strategies to those investors who were there earlier. So it's not that they don't exist, right? They're there, um, but they usually come in later at a later stage of, of development. The thing I will say though, is that like, because I wasn't finding it, that's what made me turn to the data 
to confirm it, right? So, because what I thought is if I go to the data and it and it, the data reveals to me that if you look at inflows of FDI from the US and that's higher, that I'm missing something and I need to go back to the field and figure that out. But the data, the statistical data actually confirmed what I was seeing on the ground. It's just that I wasn't, nobody was looking for it. We weren't, and nobody was looking at it in that way, right? So it took putting these two pieces of the puzzle together, like mapping the qualitative findings onto the quantitative data that really made me think, okay, this is, this is data, right? Like I'm seeing it on the ground. I'm seeing it here are the numbers. Like where else could I look, right? Like it's, we're not going to see a shift in the statistics. If there's more inflow of FDI coming from Western nations, there just wasn't. Um, and, you know, I think this is why that, you know, if you think about like, why was Obama pushing the, the TPP so hard at the time? Because even he saw the dominance of China and other Southeast Asian countries coming in, like Western hegemony is non-existent there anymore. Like the, the U.S. doesn't write the rules of the road for the rest of the world anymore. There were, there's plenty of investment coming in from other places, it, but people were not putting the two and two together. I really think, and I'm going to take credit for this because I, I feel like I should own it, but I was really ahead of the times at that time, you know? Now we, we take for granted that it's common knowledge, but like it wasn't common knowledge. And I think that's what knowledge production is, right? Like who is the person to find and see that and try to shift our paradigms around how we think about this at the time. I mean, that's what I was after. That's what I was doing. doesn't mean it was easy to do. And it doesn't mean that it was easy to convince people of, but like when I asked people like, what other data do you want me to harness in order to prove my argument? Nobody could, nobody could think of what other data to get. Right. And so I'm like, maybe that's somebody else's project. Like I could be wrong and that's fine. That's how we advance knowledge, but then bring forth other data to, to, to like advance that conversation. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. And that actually, that sort of detail actually on a, on a very micro level with our own community is, is transformative as well. And because of that, I have a question about your relationship with your mom and dad. Were you able to really communicate with them your work did you were you able to really break through sort of like any uh, uh did they have any idea of the the kind of like the work that you were doing both on the sex worker side and the financial auto side so i will say this i think people are going to find shocking um my parents were not as um how do i say this they weren't as um, taken back by the sex industry. You know, I think because they ran this pool hall, they understood mm -hmm. that like, they understood that there is a humanity in the work. Um, that space actually is probably more familiar to them in terms of like the kind of people, right? Like um, it, you know, it's, there's something about, I mean, I don't know. I, mean, I don't think they ever felt like, oh my gosh, she's totally safe. I, I wouldn't say that, but there was something about it that was familiar to all of us. What I think is, so that I think is surprising, but I think what's also surprising to many Vietnamese people is that there's this assumption that all parents want their kids to be highly educated. Mm -hmm. And that was definitely not the case in my family. Um, I grew up in a very working class patriarchal household and um, my father was not the biggest fan of me getting a PhD. 
Um, he, you know, I, it, I think it's complicated. I think, you know, to say that he's not proud is probably totally not, not totally true, but like, he was not the biggest supporter at all. I mean, he would always be like, Oh, you know, the more educated you become, the harder it is for you to get married. You're never going to get married who you're going to marry. And, and that, that played into my own feelings of being old and unmarriageable. And like, I'm going to be alone. And, and actually by the time I turned 30, I had just accepted before I met my now husband that I would just be alone for the rest of my life. And I accepted that because I was, um, I loved my career and I, I, I wanted to be educated. Right. And so um, and I will say this too, that, um, and I think this is something we don't talk about enough in Vietnamese communities. It's just like for young women who have high career ambitions, um, we, many, and I wouldn't say all, but I, I think may, my imagination is that maybe women who g- grew up in elite families that were educated, you know, their families encourage that, right? But I think that my experience of growing up working class is that like, not all parents are equally supportive of, of all kids' education, right? So like, I think my parents, if my brother wanted to go and get a PhD, totally fine, be a lawyer, be a doctor. But like, for them, they always saw my greatest thing was to be a housewife, it was like to go to college and, and meet a husband, right? It wasn't to like make my own money, have my own career, establish myself. And, and on that front, I think my mom was quietly supportive in the sense that she was kind of like in awe that I was doing what I was doing. Um, but my father was not supportive at all. And in fact, like at each one of my graduations, like didn't want to show up, you know, I mean, just like it wasn't. So I think that this is something that I'm just going to say now, and I'm going to own it because it's a part of my life and it's a part of my story. Um, but I think that, you know, and if there's other Vietnamese women whose fathers, you know, don't encourage their education, I, I think that I, I understand that that is an extra uphill battle because when you don't have the encouragement or support on top of being like the only, you know, on top of these class differences in the, in the programs you're in, it's, it's really hard, right? Like to navigate all of these spaces, because I, I think like, you know, I had friends in graduate school when it was, when it came exam time, their parents would come up and like cook meals for them and take care of them and like really help them to like pass these exams. I didn't have any of that. Like I was really on my own, you know? Um, and that I think made it a, a little bit extra harder, right? Like a, a harder to get through. And, and, um, and at the same time, in addition to that, within the Vietnamese community, like I wasn't a lawyer or a doctor or I wasn't an engineer. And so people didn't really know what to do with what this, this wasn't a profession that was, that I think um, many women who come from working class backgrounds imagine themselves entering into. And the reason why is like, why would you spend seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years in a PhD program when you could be earning a salary and income? I will say that now I feel like I lived, I live a pretty charmed life. Like, um, you know, I, I, I work at a, at a private, you know, very well-resourced institution. And, um, I feel like I'm living what is now my dreams, but it took, it was a long journey to get there. Um, and I think that there's a lot about academia that people don't know in terms of the perks. Like I have winters and summers. I can go, I travel all around the world. Like I can, there's the sky's the limit in terms of like what I can do. I own all of my, my, my intellectual work, my ideas, you know, um, there's so much freedom. Like now that I have a daughter, I can, I I sort of like work at my, on my own, like, I don't have a boss in that sense. Right. 
And, um, and I have certain kinds of freedoms that I think don't aren't offered to other kinds of professions. And I think that we need to share that more because it's a really charmed career when it, when it goes well, right? Like when, when you land, um, but that doesn't mean that people shouldn't have those aspirations too. But I think it's important that there's also a gender divide, right? Like in the Vietnamese community, even we celebrate, we tend to celebrate the successes of men, you know, our, our male doctors and, you know, dentists and pharmacists. And we um, don't do that as much for women. And I think that it's important to do that, you know, um, because we, we need more people in the professions, you know, not just men. You, you know, when I think about what you're talking about right now, I think about sort of like the way an architect or designer plans a living space. You know, we, as in the Vietnamese community, we have a, a designated way of where the bedrooms are, the bathrooms are, the eating space. So it's so... Uh, it's so ingrained in our head that you can't really, there, there's no shift because we come from a survival uh, culture after the war. So you can't really put like the living room, like, you know, a, a, w anywhere you want because it has to be this way. I think uh, the Western culture affords us this sort of abstract way of kind of pursuing our careers and going about it the way we kind of want to figure it out. Our second generation is afforded that now because we don't have to worry about survival or putting our yeah. food on putting food on on the table. And thank God now we have people like you that are doing this kind of work because it not only opens up the actual practical side of of reality in Vietnam and and the way we understand it, but it also opens up like for the third generation, for the future generation, your daughter, my daughter, to see things in a completely different light. And we're yeah. now able to tackle in different subjects uh, in a different wow. way. And we, we are living, I think, we are living in, a, in a, great, um, a great time because we're able to do this. I have um, a few more questions. And I now that the conversation is like blown open, I'm, I'm like trying to figure out where I kind of want to spend these last few minutes with you because... There's, there's so much that I want to ask about, you know, um, I'll just throw out a few maybe questions and maybe we can sort of like pick and choose what we want to talk about. But you, you, you've mentioned, or I've written, um, I've read about like what other uh, reviewers have said on the, uh, in the book about, there's this whole idea of like a multi-tiered sex industry. I would, I wanted to talk about that. I wanted to um, talk about like your perception of men uh, did it change while you are, you know, now do you look at things differently? Isn't it an on and off switch for you? And, um, you know, why is prostitution more accepted in Asia than it he is here in the U S and you, you know, it, there's a lot of like weird, um, norms that, that, that are accepted in the U S that are not accepted in Asia, you know, and vice versa. Yeah. And, um, Sort of those are the three, you know, like this multi-tier yeah. sex industry. I mean, what well, was the, yeah. the multi-tier sex industry is I think important because um it's multi-tiered in the US too, right? Like if we just don't think about we don't put it together. So there's like street workers, there's you know, people who work in like, you know, the, the girls in those high-end hostess bars downtown LA, like you, you know what I'm talking about, like booking clubs and stuff like that. 
Um, so I was really interested in like a hierarchy and understanding like why do some women end up in one bar versus another or like who caters to what? And it was in that interest in the hierarchy. I assumed that Western men would be at the top of that hierarchy. And if, if you asked anyone at that time, most people would assume that Western men were at the top of that hierarchy. What was surprising to me at the time was that Vikyu men were higher than Western men and Vietnamese, local Vietnamese men were higher than Vikyu men, right? So if we go back to the initial story that I opened up with, right? Yeah. About how my imaginations of Vietnam is that Vietnam is this poor country, right? We go back to like, I'm, I'm coming back in the 90s on Sitlo and like, I'm thinking that my family is so rich compared to and so fortunate compared to like people in Vietnam that are also poor, poverty stricken, whatever. And here I am 2005 and I'm like, oh my gosh, like, why do Western men occupy a position below Vietnam men? Okay, then like, that's interesting. But then why do Vitgu men occupy a position below Vietnamese men, right? Like there, has, there was a massive shift that we, I was seeing on the ground and I didn't know how to articulate it. And, no, and very few people believed me. Right now, like now the Vietnamese are so rich that they're, you know, it's like, it's undeniable, it's right? Yeah, it's a you, given. Yeah, you, but, but at the time, I mean, if you just think about going back to Vietnam at the time, like, yeah. you know, the nail salon workers, and this is no ding on them. My parents are small business owners too, right? Like, they go back to Vietnam and they know up and down, like how, you know, how rich they are and stuff like that. And now it's like, the joke is on us, totally. you know? And we, we used to, and, I, and I'm going to go back to this too. Like when I say things like, oh, you know, as a kid, I used to think about those Vietnamese men in my parents' billiard as like, you know, like not Americanized and I wanted to become Americanized. Well, the joke is on me because frankly, like the, the, the Vietnamese folks in Vietnam that are my age, are like running companies and they, 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 those, those people have met Obama and Trudeau and like, they're running in like high, high elite circles, right? They met Prince Harry and Prince William. I mean, I will never ever know what that is like. It's like, it's a stratosphere outside of anything I could imagine experiencing. Maybe if I'm lucky someday, because those people come to speak at the University of Chicago quite often now, but like the idea that I would have dinner with one of them, it's like crazy to me, right? The idea that a Vietnamese girl from some pool hall would have dinner with Obama, like get out of here. Those kids in Vietnam though, that's their life now, right? They're not kids, they're my age. I call them kids because I think of executives in the United States as being like 50 or above. They're executives at 35. They're not, I mean, they're not, they're my age. So, so I think that there's something really fascinating about this shifting geopolitical order and the rise of Asia, the, the decline of the West, a moment where that is shifting what it means to be Vitkyo in Asia, you know, what it means to be white in Asia, right? Like, the, and, and, you know, and I will say that, like, when I say these things, it triggers a lot in white men in particular, like, it hasn't been great for my career all the time, because it's very triggering to them, because I think that, you know, American anxieties, particularly around coronavirus, behind that was a moment, was a context of this rise of China, the rich Chinese, the rich Vietnamese, the rich kids from Asia coming to the United States to study abroad, right? Like, there's a, there, it's not, it's not that coronavirus suddenly brought out all this like anti-Asian hate. It's that it's coming on the heels of a moment when Asia is on the rise and Americans feel 
threatened left out of it threatened and left out and, and i'm not gonna lie either i feel left out. i feel fomo sometimes like oh my gosh my friends in vietnam are living it up like i can't afford that you know um but but i but we have to give it to them right it's a it's their moment it's their turn it's their time and 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 i think that that's um that's the hierarchy story right that the the kind of the shift in the how the shift in the sex industry is a reflection of the shift in the geopolitical order and how, you know, people say that, and, and it was, it was in studying the sex industry that allowed me to see that broader shift that other people couldn't see in other places because they weren't looking for it because they didn't want to believe it because it was crazy. To, I mean, that's a paradigm shift by itself. You know what I mean? Yeah. But that was a great answer, by the way, with, with what you just explained. I mean, these are things that we never think about. I don't, I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's such a, a complex and, and nuanced conversation that um, I love it. I, I love to hear about it. I had no idea. Uh, yeah, going back to prostitution. And, and I think, you know, when I talk to older generation women, uh, Vietnamese, it's just so acceptable. You know, oh, my little brothers, you know, I talk to the, the older women of my mom's generation. Yeah, they talk about their little brothers getting STDs and they just go to the pharmacy, you know, back in the 70s and just clean the little boys up and it, everything's fine. Like there's no judgment on it. But then why is virginity so placed on such a, a, a crazy pedestal? You know, it's just all of these yeah. weird uh, differences between uh, the US and, and or the Western culture and the, and the Eastern culture. I think that um, that's something when I go and give talks, um, one of the things that I found most striking are the ways in which Vietnamese women are always pitted against each other. So, and the freedoms that men are afforded. And I think this is ultimately, you know, growing up in a patriarchal household, this is ultimately like what makes me a gender scholar, right? Like, why are men able to go and do whatever, but women are called hookers or they're called sluts or they're called prostitutes, even as derogatory towards women who are not working in those industries, right? Like, um, and growing up, you know, I feel like as a girl in a Catholic, you know, upbringing, like virginity was something that everyone like really like protected at the same time that men are going out and doing all kinds of crazy shit, you know? And so on the one hand, um, I think that when I meet Vietnamese women in the United States, it's a very sore topic for them because um, there's a lot of pain in the fact that their husbands had gone back and cheated and spent a lot of money on these women. And so one way that they like make sense of it is that these men were like, someone put bull on these men and that they were like, you know, like, like, you know, that they became out of control of their own bodies and like, you know, and, and so what that does is it takes responsibility away from the men and gives room for forgiveness. And, you know, you like go find someone to like take the ball, take the hatch off of them and whatever. But then on the other hand, like having done the work in Vietnam and having put myself in that position, um, I think is also like a way in which Vietnamese women in Vietnam juxtapose themselves against Vietnamese American women in that like, yeah, I could, I could steal your husband. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I'm, and, and it, there's something about like, I feel like we need to move away from this competition because, or this way of comparison, because, and I think this is what I think make me ultimately feel very vulnerable, which is that like, um, the reality of it is that 
you know, I, I, if you think about reality TV in some ways now, you think about like the Kardashians, I think like what differentiates them who like sell their bodies and sexuality from the women that I met in these bars selling their bodies and sexuality to advance and make a better living for themselves. Nothing. And frankly, like as a wife now and as a mother, like if you really subscribe to that patriarchy, like what's the difference between a wife and a, and a sex worker? I like, like, let's just take it there in some ways. I mean, and I, I know this is very crass of me to say, but I think it's really important to, um, to like disentangle some of these things and really at the root of it, think about like how this privileges men in so many ways, because like in so many ways, it just means like women have to be like, have to live this really schizophrenic life, right? Like they have to be accepting of their husbands who cheat. They have to be accepted. They have to be like good mothers. They have to be, there's so many pressures on them that I personally feel like having done this work and having have a sense of respect for the women that I studied in Vietnam, but also an empathy for women whose lives were totally turned upside down by the, you know, by infidelity abroad, um, is that like, it all goes back to why we privilege men and we treat them like little princes. I mean, they're raised as little princes, as young boys, and then they grow up to be Kings with whose power goes completely unchecked. And Am I going to get a lot of shit from Vietnamese men about this? Probably. But like, do I care anymore? No. Like, because you know why I'm raising a daughter now and um, I'll be damned if she marries a guy like that. You know what I mean? Like, I agree. But I I think the Vietnamese men today, uh, the younger generation, they're very different. They're not as anymore. That, that, That kind of paradigm shift is happening and in a very beautiful way, I think with the um, sort of integration for better, for worse, with the Korean culture and the Korean drama, you know, you, you, you feel a little bit more of the equality happening from sort of from the Korean culture, you know, rubbing off through osmosis uh, quite a bit in Vietnamese society. I, I'm yeah. only, I don't really know that much about that sort of corner. So that's all I'm going to say about. But I see the young Vietnamese men that I've known in my life working with them, they, they seem to not be of the same uh, thinking as our parents, our, our fathers. You know? Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I definitely think that's true. And it gives me a lot of hope. Um, the, the Vietnamese men of our generation, I would say, I don't know how old you are. I'm just assuming you look young, <laughs> but um, okay. I feel like younger. Yeah. The younger men who were educated in the but even I, this is also what I will say too about going back to Vietnam. Um, surprisingly, a lot of the men there aren't as aren't as patriarchal to uh, me. Vietnam. Yeah, yeah, and they are like you know they're very involved in their children's lives as fathers. Um, they're very you know loving to their wives and in a, in a way I, that I find surprising. So so for me too, the journey of going back to Vietnam. And, and this goes, this, I feel like this comes now full circle back to where we began, which is like, what does it mean to be Vietnamese? Like, I think there's something about being Vietnamese American where you're raised with these ideas that a Vietnamese family is patriarchal. A Vietnamese family is one where the man is the head of the household, the wife is subservient, blah, blah, blah. But then, act, and, 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 um, and men rule with like uh, complete power and this and that. But the, the reality of it is actually, actually that there are very, there are many Vietnamese men of that generation in Vietnam who do not behave that way and who are proudly married to very powerful women. 
And actually, if you look closely, there's some really powerful Vietnamese businesswomen running the show there in Vietnam right now, you know? I completely agree. And then there's also this too, that I think that we don't discuss enough. And I, I've done, I don't claim to be a researcher in this department, but the men of my father's generation were typically, uh, you know, they were ranked ranking officials. They were military guys. They were people that had these positions that they had uh, people under them. So their thinking was very Zhejiang, which is patriarchal. Um, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. probably for the most part, the rest of Vietnam's men were not like that. They were probably yeah. just part of their family. And so what yeah. we're not here in the U.S., we're just a bunch of uh, men who are, who are used to power and used to women being a little bit more subservient because of the dominant position that they have, the men held in their society. And yeah. that is a study, I think, in itself as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I, um, I appreciate this conversation so much. And um, the things that you say, uh, the stories that you told are so gripping. And the analysis that follow it is just so, uh, be- they're beautiful stories. And they're just beautiful breakdowns of, of what we don't really think of every day. So I've you know, I appreciate you coming on and, and talking. And I hope that I can hear more um, in the following years about your work, about the growth of your um, sort of what you're learning. I want to learn, you know, first, this is a very s- selfish show for me. I, I can't believe I get to sit here and talk to people like you. So thank you so Aww. much. Well, thank you. I really appreciate you saying that since I've looked at some of your podcasts and you've interviewed some people who I'm really intimidated by. So um, I think you've gotten some really amazing people and I, I, I wish you the best of luck with this show and, and this podcast. I really hope that um, I really hope that you draw in a good audience and, and I hope that this is the beginning of so many conversations in the community that we're not having. Um, so I, I applaud you for doing this and having the courage to like spark these conversations that all of us have just been walking around having quietly in our own heads, you know, but like to really make it public, I think takes courage. I'm, I'm kind of scared though, to be honest with you, (laughs) I am, um, because I know that some of the guests that I have are probably in direct, um, opposition to the way you look at, uh, the world. And so I don't know if it's my job to sort of just like give everybody a platform to talk because it, it it's important, but then yeah. I'm afraid of allegiances and alliances because yeah. how many people are helping out with introducing to you know new guests and people who are they're aligned with, but we also need to reach across the aisle. I mean, especially now to to really get to know everybody's point of view, whether we agree with it or, or not, and have some sort of dialogue. And you know, it's so important, you know, just to be open minded. I, to- I, I totally agree. I mean, yeah, I, I, I just, I totally agree. I couldn't agree more. I think there are so many people whose political views are different, particularly after this last election. But um, at the end of the day, you know, we're all part of the same community in some way. And I feel like there's something about growing up Vietnamese where there's always this harsh competition and like constant negativity. And I, I think that our generation is going to move us out of that. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's by having these conversations across the board, like, I'm not going to be so agnostic to say like, oh, if you talk to me, you shouldn't talk to these other people. And how dare that guy go? To-? I don't, I don't think so. Like, I think we should have all views and they all matter, even if they're different, you know? You know, um, there's this concept right now that I was introduced to you by Brittany, right? 
And, you know, she's helped me with my marketing and, you know, she's really helping to understand like what we're doing. Her team came up with this idea called uh, hashtag Vietnamese first. And I'm going to share it here first. This is the first time I'm talking about it. In the beginning, I didn't understand it. Vietnamese first. I I don't want to be that guy who's so nationalistic and saying, oh, we number one, we number one. I don't want to do that that, because that's not what this is about. But it began, I began to understand what the, her team and props to Brittany's team, Tina and Brittany, they, they came up with this idea, hashtag Vietnamese first. That doesn't mean, cause I had to debate them and they're like, no, no, no. It doesn't mean that Vietnamese people are number one. It means that no matter what Vietnamese, we are Vietnamese first. We, we, we are together. We identify that should be our sort of our priority. We, we identify yeah. as Vietnamese people first and foremost as a community and then yeah. anything else can, you know, can roll off, right? And it's so yeah. beautiful, but you're going to s- sort of see it in, in the marketing. I mean, they're, they're a very strong team and they, they understand sort of this messaging that we're, we're trying yeah. to really convey. And, and I think that's great. And I think it's a, it's a breath of fresh air, to be honest. Um, I will say that I've been very media shy um, up until now because of the negativity that ensues when you do interviews like this in the Vietnamese community. But when Brittany sent the email saying like, hey, this guy's going to contact you, I, tr- I trust her. And I think the reason why I trust her is because it's a, po- I mean, she's just about positive energy and positive space. I will say that having her send that first is it allowed me to open up and be more vulnerable and say, share things that I wouldn't have shared otherwise. And I know that this is probably going to open me up to criticism, but I'm actually okay with that because if your vision is to, you know, to bring everyone to the table, to have a conversation, then, then we, we have to sort of all let our guards down. You know what I mean? We, we can't, we can't have these errors about us anymore. Like we have to let it go. Right. And, and, and now with technology, there's nothing wrong with like bringing you and then somebody who's on the other side and we can do a three-way and we can really talk yeah. about and, not, and, and just be civil about the, the dialogue that comes from it. And, yeah. you know, and there's a future here for our community to sort of bond through conversation that we didn't yeah. have before this technology was available. So thank yeah. you uh, again. Well, thank you. And thank you for doing this and good luck with the project. I really wish you the best with it. It, it's, it looks like it's amazing. Thank you, Kimberly. And we'll, you know, with the help of Brittany, we'll get the word out. So okay. if you do find conflict. That means we've done our job. That's <laughs> win. You know, that's what he says. If, if you don't have people against you, then you're not doing your job. If you don't have both sides against you, you're not doing your job. So True. That's so funny. True. Yeah. All right. Again. Well, I have to get going because I need to get my kid, but it was really great chatting with you. And, and thanks again. Thank you so much. Okay. Take care. Okay. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran and Javier Proenza. Special thanks to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Crystal Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcasts. Thanks again for listening. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. 
Head to Hero.co to shop today.